So, good evening. We'd like to congratulate you for still being here after 24 hours. Sometimes it's not the easiest 24 hours, despite whatever great fantasies and hopes and expectations and idealizations you may have had about or memories about coming to Spirit Rock retreat and silence and meditation and bliss and light and nirvana and who knows what the, you know, but we come with hopeful fantasies, right? And then we meet the reality of our experience, which is uh, not necessarily that. You know, sleepy, restless, bored, wondering what I'm doing here. Why does everybody else look like they're getting it except me? Um, So just good to notice uh, the stories and the ideas or projections that might come. And the doubting mind is one of the hindrances that that can come um, and that can be particularly common at this point of a retreat. The what am I doing? What is this for? What's this got to do with anything? Following my breath, like the world's going down in smoke and I'm following my breath up a hill. What's up with that? One woman said when she was on retreat this first day, she said, I'd rather be at work. I mean, for some of you, you probably had a very sweet, quiet, lovely day, and some of you, it's been a roller coaster, and some of you, it's been challenging. You know, it's you know, and it will change as the hours and the days go by. And uh, practice is is to simply learn how to meet all of that you know, with kindness, with compassion, with presence, with curiosity. You know, I mean, it's always interesting to see. Well, here I am at Spirit Rock. It's beautiful. I'm fed. I'm cooked for. People clean the bathrooms. I have nothing to do, no emails to check. And I feel crappy or miserable or restless. Like, so what, what's up with that? You know, what, what's getting in the way of us just simply being at ease in a natural sense of well-being? If there is something getting in the way, we want to get to know that. What is that? You know? Has there anybody here experienced serene peace unbroken for the last 24 hours? <laughs> right, so, well, what's, you know, the, these teachings are saying, well, what, what's getting in the way of that? What creates stress, pain, and satisfactoriness? So that's why we practice to understand ourselves, get to know what's going on inside. Because there's nothing really to blame. I mean, we can blame the squeaky doors and... You know, the floorboards creak too much or someone's breathing too loudly or someone's snoring or something. We can blame something, you know, we can look for the fault. But really, it's the the answer to our peace and our freedom lies in our own mind and hearts. There's a Zen cartoon, there's a bunch of Zen monks sitting in in the Zendo, all very... ardently practicing, and one guy's on his cell phone calling home or something. This doesn't seem to be doing me any good whatsoever. Well, your cell phones don't work here, so you can't be doing that, but, and you're in silence anyway, even if you wanted to. So, what I want to talk about tonight is the practice of mindfulness, which is the central quality and practice we're developing here. What is it? Why are we developing it? What the Buddha had to say about it? What I've learned about it from my own practice? So I remember when I started meditating, I was, I was in London, I was 19. Well, when I first started learning mindfulness meditation, I'd done some earlier meditation. but um, And uh, I was a pretty angry young man 
and had a lot of rage and a lot of confusion and uh, a lot of hatred, actually. And I didn't know why particularly. Um, and I started meditating because I was looking for something. I was really in a lot of pain. And I was blaming the world and the government and Margaret Thatcher and you know whoever else was around who I could pin my resentment on. And I remember learning, to, starting to practice mindfulness, and it just—it's like I woke up from a sleep. And if ever you, if you've had that experience, where I just became more conscious and more self-conscious, and it was quite a revelation to realize I had that capacity to become more aware, more present, more conscious as opposed to unconscious. I was still pretty unconscious most of the time. But there was these moments, these inklings of awareness that was bright, that had spaciousness to it. Uh, it brought a lot of joy. Like I was living in this really run-down part of London, and I was angry, and the, the place around me was pretty gloomy, and England was quite depressed at the time. And um, But I also noticed that I had some choice in, in where I placed my attention. And that I could turn my attention to not just what was painful and difficult and ugly and depressing, but also what was joyful to nature, to the beauty, to the people. And so I found it tremendously empowering, actually. And I've noticed over the years, especially teaching, seeing the transformation in people that come to classes or courses or retreats, so there was one uh, uh, woman came to, uh, I teach this year-long class called Essential Dharma, and she came because she was about to get fired from her job because she, she was in a lot of contention with a lot of the staff um, and, and people were unhappy with her performance. So she came hoping that this might help in some way. She didn't really know what she was getting into. And so she started meditating regularly um, and after about the first, the first semester is 10 weeks, people were asking, what, what was up? Like, what, what's, what are you doing? You're different. I'm not quite sure what it is, but you're just a lot easier to be around. And at the end of that year, she got amazing reviews and uh, her whole, whole being really changed just from simply doing uh, a meditation practice, becoming more aware of herself, her mind, her body, her communication, how mindfulness has this uncanny ability to spill into every part of our life. So we may just be primarily cultivating mindfulness of breathing, but it starts to grow into different facets of our life. And there's a, I want to read a quote from somebody who was at that same class. He said, The practice allows me to sit with difficult daily situations without developing the habitual, reactive, or scapist tendencies. Of course they still occur, but I feel a wonderful shift. It's as though I now possess the beginnings of an internal reference point or place that is neither intellectual, mental, or filled with any previous stuff. There is inherent purity in this place like a spring discovered deep in the forest. So, as you may know, mindfulness uh, is no longer obscure. It's really making its inroads into mainstream society, into education, into healthcare, into prisons, into neuroscience, into psychology. Um, certainly, when I started practicing it, it was pretty fringe and pretty weird, and Buddhism was considered a little culty, at least according to my family. Um, and at the time of the Buddha, it was very radical. The, 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 the practice of mindfulness that he articulated and cultivated and taught was quite different than what was being offered at the time. And it became very central to his teaching. He said, just as in the last month of the rains in autumn, when the sky is clear and cloudless, the sun on ascending the sky, overpowers the space immersed in darkness. Okay, I lost my way there somewhere. 
All right, we're talking about the sun, right? The sun on ascending the sky overpowers the space immersed in darkness, shines, blazes, and dazzles in the same way all skillful qualities are rooted in mindfulness, converge in mindfulness, and mindfulness is reckoned the foremost among them. So what is this quality of mindfulness that was so central to his own liberation, to his teaching, and to what we offer here? This quality of attention that's not just an ordinary attention, it's an intentional attention. It's a quality of attention that is uh, without preference, without bias, without a lot of story around it, a lot of concepts around it. We call it a bare attention. Simply receiving, so like with the breath, not imagining the breath, not fantasizing about the breath, not trying to change the breath, simply What's the breath like in this moment, and then this moment, and then this moment? Free from our ideas or our, or our preferences. Which, as you can see, is simple but not so easy. Because we have a simple experience, and then we have a lot of thoughts about it, a lot of ideas about it, judgments about it. Well, it's a good breath, it's long, it's not good breath, it's controlled, it's tight, I wish it was not controlled, I'm so uptight about my breath, why am I so uptight? And we create lots of stories, and all that's happening is, is the breath is coming and going. So mindfulness gives us the capacity to simply know what's happening in our experience as it's happening. This is from Gary Larson. There's a, there's a bunch of cows in the field from the far side, and uh, one of the cows is looking up a little startled, and he's saying to himself, Hey, wait a minute. This is grass. We've been eating grass. So it's like that when with mindfulness we wake up. Oh, this is what I've been doing. I'm lost in fantasy the whole day. Anybody lost in... Th- anybody knows... Anybody been thinking today? Yeah? Fantasy, daydream, memories, fixing the past, planning the better future. Yeah, that's what we do. So we start to wake up. We might have the thought, God, I think a lot when I'm at Spirit Rock. I don't normally think much when I'm at home or when I'm at work. It must be something wrong with the food or something. I don't know. All this tofu they're feeding us. Um, No, we just get to see what's usually unconscious. One of the things that we do a lot is think. We check out. We space out. So the Buddha gave some similes that I really think are quite helpful for getting a sense. There's, there's many of these qualities that we teach, and mindfulness is one of them, has many facets. So in similes and poetry can point to that a little, a little easier. So one simile he gave is it's like, mindfulness is like a cow herder or a shepherd. Not that we have many around here, but um, if you imagine, you see this a lot in India, you'll see the cows and the bullocks out in the pasture and, and the creeks and the rivers. And there'll be somebody, uh, uh, usually a child, uh, is, is herding the cows or just ba- kind of keeping a quiet watch over them so they don't stray into the farmer's fields, they don't get into trouble. And the, the, the description he, he gives is, um, is, is the cow herder is resting up against a tree and has a relaxed, general awareness of the field of experience. So it's not like, you know, hitting the cows and hurting them every two seconds, not too uptight, and not falling asleep so the cows go and trample the crops. So it's this relaxed presence, which we referred to. He also gave the simile of a watchtower. You know, when you have a high vantage point and you have a vista, and you can see the coming and the going of experience. He also talked about it as a gatekeeper. You know, a gatekeeper in an old in the old towns, there would be somebody who was a gatekeeper who would monitor what would enter and leave. So the same, same too with mindfulness, we get to we get to monitor what enters and leaves our mind stream. We have some choice over where what we do with our mind and our attention. Or like a surgeon, he said, like we go in with a probe sometimes with a very microscopic attention. We get very detailed and precise and careful about the breath or a sensation or a feeling or some experience. Or like a surfer, 
he didn't talk about surfing, but you know, a surfer who rides the waves. You know, mindfulness allows us to ride the waves of experience without getting without getting lost in them. So one of the things that mindfulness does is it allows us to come more into the present moment. And as you can see, you know, if we did a tally of how, what percentage you were in the present moment today, right, what would it be? You know, 10%, 2%, 50%, you know, be honest. <laughs> Where would you rank it, you know? So, and the more mindful we get, the more we see, actually, I, was, I thought I was present, but actually was, there was like a subtle layer of thinking and spaciness and drifting. And, and so we get to see how much of the present moment we actually miss. Just like when we're doing walking practice, you walk down the hill and we see how present are we, just in that simple activity. There's a poem from Billy Collins, part of a poem that I'll, I'll read, um, where he says, um, I could feel the day offering itself to me, and I wanted nothing more to be in the moment, but which moment? Not this one, or that one, or that other one, or any of those that were scuttling by didn't seem perfectly right for me. And besides, I was too knotted up with questions about the past and his tall, evasive sister, the future. And what would we serve the vegetarian twins who were coming to dinner that evening, who knew that they would bring their own grapes? And why was that driver in the lone pickup truck driving down to the railroad tracks? All I wanted to be, and then he says, and so the priceless moments of the day were squandered one by one, or more likely a thousand at a time, with quandary and pointless interrogation. Sound familiar? (laughs) I don't want to be with this experience. This is kind of boring. I don't want to be with that. That's too agitating. Uh, And and so we let all these things go by. Now I'll just think about work again, because I'm really close to solving that problem. But just give a couple more minutes. You know, and then mm, 20 minutes later, we 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 wake up. So, and not to judge that, just to see, oh, this is we're getting to understand ourselves, getting to understand the patterns. Yeah, we're creatures of habits, so we come into retreat life when those patterns are operating quite healthily and vibrantly. So we get to see how much we think, how much we space out, how much we distract, how much we don't want to be with that which is unpleasant or difficult. Or we see, we get caught in the ideas of, well, maybe somewhere else is, is actually better than this. Maybe I should have done a yoga retreat, you know, at the spa. You know, or maybe if it was sunny, it would have been a better day. Or maybe if I'd brought my nice silk cushion, you know, with back support, I'd be, you know, so we get into this fantasy of how it could be better. And we start trying to improve or escape or manipulate in some way. So what are, what are the ways that you check out? What are the ways that you just numb out from being here? There was a re- uh, we did a retreat recently, and um, there was an architect, uh, and he said he spent the whole. This is a month-long retreat. <laughs> he spent, you know, and this is a great place for an architect. You, you know, looking at the beams and the supporting beams and how he would have done it differently, and the, you know, so that's one way. And then we had an uh, interior designer who kept redesigning the color of this wall because he didn't like the color. Um, so, you know, name your, you know, name your, your medicine or your poison. Um, so, and as we've been doing today, we've kept the practice very simple. Mindfulness of the breath, gathering, collecting, unifying what is normally a quite scattered, quite distracted, quite restless attention. You know, we live in a, in a world now where our attention is frequently, you know, there's a, the phrase that I was at this conference down at Google, Wisdom 2.0, a meeting of mindfulness folks and techie folks. And there was a phrase that somebody invented down there called um, constant impartial attention. 
mostly we're operating with constant impartial attention. So we're kind of checking our email, but we're sort of on the phone trying to have a conversation, or we're eating our dinner, but we're reading the paper, you know. Constant impartial attention. So we see that when we, when we come down to practice, our attention is not unified. And so uh, part of mindfulness practice, we, we develop some concentration, some continuity where we gather the forces. Because when, when the mind is gathered in that way, it's a very powerful medium. It's a very powerful force. But when it's restless and scattered and distracted, we can't, we can't do much with it. We can't see very clearly. And the point of this practice, vipassana means to see clearly, to see clearly what's here. But if we're like a, you know, hyperactive Labrador puppy, you know, which we often feel like, then how much can we settle and, and, and sink into, into some depth here? And as we've mentioned, we're not trying to go anywhere or be anywhere except here. which is sometimes sobering. My teacher in India used to say, this is it. This is it. And part of me would go, really? <laughs> this is it? Oh God, I thought it was going to be something really much more fantastical and lots of lights and colors and you know, bliss. And this is it. It's like, this is it. In the middle of the marketplace, in the polluted Indian city that we were in, in this is it. And, and then another part of me was like, wow, this is it. This is it. There's nothing else. This is it. Like, wake up. It's already here. So that famous uh, piece of the Four Quartets from T.S. Eliot where he says, we shall never cease from our exploration. As we do. And we never cease from our exploration. At the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive exactly where we started and know the place for the first time. So we, we sit, we walk, we practice, not to get somewhere in the future, but to know this right here and now, as if for the first time we cultivate this quality of beginner's mind. No matter how many retreats you've sat, how many med- breaths you've followed, how many meditations you've done, can you just be here with this? So the good news is, in terms of this quality of mindfulness, quality of awareness, it's, it's innate within us, as, as we pointed to yesterday. So let's do an exercise. So for the next you know, half a minute or less, don't pay attention to anything. Right? No mindfulness, no awareness, no trying, nothing. Okay? See what happens. No bell. What do you notice? Anybody? You notice anything? And you're not paying attention? (laughs) (laughs) It's about as mindful as he's been on this retreat. Great. Yeah. Aha. Right, so it wasn't a struggle to be mindful. So what does that tell us? So there's something about the way that we try, that we over-try, we over-effort, I've got to be mindful, as if somehow it's, it's somehow foreign to us. Right? So it's impossible not to pay attention. I'll just give you the answer for sake of time. Right? It's impossible. Awareness is the nature of our mind, it's always aware of something. And sometimes in, in specifically not trying to pay attention, we see, oh, it's happening all the time. Right? Some of you probably notice sound, some of you probably notice your body, or the breath, or thoughts, or trying to not pay attention, that was the object, that was the, what was noticed. Right? So that's the good news. The good news is awareness is happening moment by moment. So we're partly tuning into that. And the question is, of course, what are we paying attention to? 
So we are to some degree garnering and harnessing that, the focus of that attention, that awareness. So where do we start with this practice? We start with where we are, as we mentioned yesterday. We start with the body. We start with the most obvious fact of our experience. The body and the breathing of the body. Yeah. The body is always in the present moment. Have you noticed that? When, you hear, when, when the senses are operating, when you're hearing, when you're tasting, you know, piece of lettuce, when you're smelling the beautiful smells of, because the forest is all moist and musky, and when you're seeing, right? The senses are always in the present. The body is always in the present. So the more we're in our bodies and in our senses, the more we're likely to be in the present. The mind is what mostly takes us out of the present into some, somewhere else. It's happening in the present, but the the movement is to the past or the future. So the Buddha talked a lot about the grounding the attention in the body. He said, mindfulness of the body is a joy. It's, it's one of your best friends. It's, it's your ally. It's your, it's your door. It's your gateway to the present. If you're ever lost or confused, just come back to the body. What's the experience like right now as you're listening, as you're, as you're s- sensing your body sitting on the earth? What's it like to be in your body? What are the sensations? Can you listen to the talk, to the words through your body? The body is a great field of receptivity, a lot of information. And we can use, you know, just like we can use sounds as a support. We can use the sensations of the body as a support. We can use the frogs croaking. And partly doing that, it helps us to come out of the busyness of the thinking mind. The Buddha said, if you're going to identify with anything, identify with the body because it moves slower. The mind is so quick, so the thoughts are so slippery. So intangible in a way, ground the awareness in the body. So we're doing that with the breath, and then we're doing that through the walking practice. Simple but not easy, to stay with the physicality of our experience. But like these practices, they're not necessarily so easy. One of the reasons it's not so easy to stay with the body is because there's a lot of uh, things that are stored in the body. Uncomfortable sensations, difficult feelings, strong feelings, memories, agitation, strong emotions, fear, anxiety, grief, loss. And to the extent that we don't want to be with those things, we're not going to want to stay residing in our body. There's a quote from <clears throat> Achan Chah who says, um, who was a great time meditation master, who says, uh, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. By running away from our emotions, our feelings, our difficult sensations, our pain, what happens? We don't actually, we can't actually get away from ourselves. We can fly to Hawaii and think we're going to get away, but guess what? Our body follows us, our mind follows us, our heart follows us, follows us to Spirit Rock, follows us into the bathroom, follows us into the bedroom. You know, wherever we go, there we are. So it, 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 you know, it behooves us to turn towards, to turn into. So your body is this, you know, as is, is this, this phrase goes, your body is a temple as long as you treat it like a temple. Yeah. Treat it like trash. It's not being with the body as a temple. There's another line that says, the way he treats his body, you think he'd be renting it. 
so we get to look at our relationship to our body, you know, and how, how often we've really just ignored it or pushed it. You know, how many of you arrived exhausted, tired, stressed, haggard? And we, get to st- we start to feel what's being carried in our body. So the important piece, one of the many important pieces of this aspect of mindfulness is not just paying attention to what's happening, but we're developing wisdom and a wise relationship to what's happening. We're developing what's called sati panya. Sati is a a word for mindfulness in Pali, and panya is wisdom. We're developing wisdom in relationship to what we're seeing. We're seeing clearly to develop insight, develop clarity, develop understanding of what is creating suffering, what's creating our distress, and how to, to be free of that. And we get to know that by looking, by standing under, by understanding. And so with any of our experiences, with our thoughts, feelings, memories, plans, emotions, we have a choice. And how we relate to these things is really the pivotal point that we want you to pay attention to. So there's the experience of what's happening, like your knee pain, your backache, bugs on the floor, you know, um, and there's, there's what are you responding to that? Like how are we relating to this moment? Are we feeling distracted? Are we feeling appreciative that the bug's going to be saved? Are we feeling... <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll, we'll, we'll be mindful of not standing on it for now. Thank you. Yeah, it looks like it's going to go for Howie. He's very popular with spiders. <laughs> so, you know, so a spider comes and we, we look at our relationship to it, or an unpleasant memory comes, or a difficult feeling comes. What's our relationship? Do we hate it? Do we reject it? Do we drown in self pity? Do we escape from it? Do we indulge in it? Do we. What happens with, with your experience? So we want, to pay, we want you to pay attention to what's happening. So maybe you thought it was going to be a beautiful sunny week and it rained all day today. You know, fortunately, you know, unlike the folks who are supposed to be sitting outside, we're not supposed to be sitting outside, so it's not so much of a big deal. But um, how do we relate to these things? You know, when we go to lunch and it's, it's, the, it's our least favorite food of all time, uh, what happens in response to that? Or, or an old injury arises in your back and it's like, oh no, I didn't come to Spirit Rock to feel my old... Wounds, no. Reaction, aversion. And so what happens is we add, we add to the discontent, we add to the miserableness of it. There's this lovely poem from Hafez, I'll just read a couple of lines from it, um, where he says something like, um, uh, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. You know. So what do we do? You know, we have a little, it's raining, and then we have a little frustration, we add a little should have gone to Hawaii thought, and, you know, blah, blah, you know, we, and we add, and then it becomes a really difficult day, you know? And it could, there could be a very different response to that. So I was with a friend of mine recently, we were at a party and uh, there was this really cool swing that went through the Redwoods um, and my friend got on it and uh, she just, I, I didn't actually see it, I was there but I didn't see it and she got on awkwardly, fell off, cracked her neck, um, rushed into hospital and um, almost paralyzed, just from this very benign, very simple little fall um, couple of crushed vertebrae and she's a dance teacher and a, and a movement teacher and, and a meditator and has been doing this practice this movement practice for 30 years and it has been beautiful to hear how she's been holding that you know in terms of her presence and surrendering to the reality of that and not blaming herself or judging herself or blaming the person who built the swing or all the ways that she could be completely drowning in self-pity and misery and there's something about the fluidity of her as a dancer and her attitude which has been really positive that's actually allowing the healing to be quite 
uh, swift. And, and also that the way that she's trained to be in her body through moving. It's been a beautiful example of how, you know, we can, no matter how difficult or beautiful something is, how we relate to it, it really is the pivotal point. So in the text, the Buddha talked about uh, being mindful of the breath. He also talked about being mindful in postures, being mindful as you move, being mindful as you do anything through the day, standing, walking, sitting, lying down. These are the four postures. We teach three of them. You can practice lying down meditation in bed. Um, But the idea is to maintain a continuity of attention throughout the day. As I mentioned earlier, that nothing is more important than anything else in the day. It's simply what's arising in our experience and can we be present to it. And as we give that kind of attention, things start to become a little more alive. And we start to see, we start to notice more. There's a certain richness in the texture of our experience. I remember I was teaching a retreat uh, recently. It was a weekend retreat and a, a student of mine came and she had a really difficult retreat, but she said there was one walking meditation where she just was completely and utterly present for one footstep, just one touching of the foot on the earth. And she said the whole retreat was worth it for that moment of seeing how profoundly present we can be with a completely ordinary experience. And, and as with that present, it becomes miraculous. You know, Maybe you've noticed that. You, you're looking at a teacup or you're tasting a piece of fruit or you're watching the, le- the, the dew drip through the leaves or you're smelling the, the woods or, and there's just a fullness of presence and it's miraculous. You, know, or you take a breath and it's like the first breath you've ever taken with awareness. And you go, wow, look what just happened. I just got breathed. The breath breathed me. So when we see something miraculous in the ordinary or we're sitting here at night and it's silent and there's just the frogs croaking and the stillness and the crickets. And there's a taste of something beyond the mundane. And that happens because we're really fully present. And that's available with, with whatever we do. Wherever we, you know, it could be splashing your face in, with water in the morning. This is a poem from Anne Sexton speaking to this, this careful attention that we can bring to anything. This is joy in all. In the hair I brush each morning, in the towel newly washed that I rub my body with each morning, in the chapel of eggs I cook each morning, in the outcry from the kettle that heats my coffee each morning, in the spoon and the chair that cry, Hello there, Anne, each morning, in the godhead of the table that I set my silver plate cup upon each morning. All this is sacred right here in my pea-green house each morning. And I mean, though often forgot, to give thanks to faint down by the kitchen table in a prayer of rejoicing at the holy birds at the kitchen window peck into the marriage of seeds. So while I think of it, let me paint a thank you on my palm for the laughter this morning lest it go unspoken. The joy that isn't shared, I've heard, dies very young. So we practice this continuity of attention in the sitting, in the walking practice, and again, we, to, to, to bring forth this, this quality of beginner's mind, we've all walked a million trillion steps probably and paid attention to 27 and a half of them. You know, what's it like to imagine you know, being a child taking the first step? You know, you're a stumbling one-year-old trying to you know, deal with gravity and two legs and you know, feel, the, as the Thich House says, kissing the earth as our, hand, as our foot places on the earth. The Buddha gives this great analogy of doing walking meditation or mindfulness like this man walking through a busy marketplace with a bowl of hot 
oil on his head filled to the brim and it's a very crowded, bustling market and he's having to follow a, a beautiful dancing woman through the market and there's a guy behind him with his raised sword that if he spills as much as a drop of oil, he's going to get his head chopped off. Practice like your hair's on fire. Practice with that sense of immediacy. So, um, there are many more things that the Buddha uh, asked us to pay attention to and we'll, we'll go into them later in the retreat. Be mindfulness of the characteristics of our experience, of uh, the quality of our experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. To be mindful of our feelings, our emotions, our moods, our mind states, states of mind that come and go. But I want to I want to uh, speak a little about a couple of things he speaks. So the the main the main practice of mindfulness comes from this uh, teaching or sutta as it's called called uh, the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, which some of you are familiar with. And uh, throughout this discourse, there's what's called a refrain where he he keeps pointing to reminding to not just pay not just to be present to what's happening, but pay attention to certain qualities of the experience. And I'll just touch on them and we'll touch on them more as the retreat goes on. First, he asks us to be aware of the arising and the, to, to be aware of the arising and the and passing of things. So with the breath, to be aware of its arising and passing nature. To be aware, to be mindful that everything in our experience is arising and passing. Nothing stays around. Have you noticed? Thoughts come and go, feelings come and go, fear, anxiety, joy, bliss, the most ecstatic meditation you've ever had, the most horrible, boring meditation, they come and they go. Be aware of the passing nature. You know, we know things intellectually change, but when we really grok it moment by moment, it actually creates a lot of spaciousness. It, it, it allows us not to grab onto the good stuff because we know it's just going to pass and to not get so overwhelmed by the pain and the difficulty, because why? Because it's going to pass. No matter how much my knees are hurting sitting here giving this talk, I know in a few minutes I'm going to get up and that sensation will dissolve. It's not a big deal. Or whatever emotional storm comes by. How long has it lasted? You know, Before we get distracted by something else, or the bell goes, or it's tea time. Or to take refuge in the knowing of this experience is very liberating. For the Buddha, it was one of the key doorways to, to liberation, seeing the transient nature of everything in our experience. And so we, we know, and when we meditate, we sit and we abide in awareness and we see the waterfall of experience. It's just a cascade. If you notice, there's a thought and then there's a breath and then there's a feeling and then there's a sound and then there's a breath and then there's you know, someone coughing and then there's a sound, there's a breath. Yeah, it's just this cascade, and we stay steady in the middle of it. He also asked to pay attention to the causal nature of things, to see how things arise in reaction, in relationship, in dependence on, on things. Yeah. So maybe we're t- we arrive with low energy, and that 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 causes us to be dull or sleepy or bored or we're, th- we're thinking about something that we're regretting and it's creating a lot of agitation or fear or, or remorse. You know, to see how thoughts create feelings and physical sensations, how sensations create emotions, how emotions create thoughts. To see the causal nature of our... We think these things are all isolated and separate. Somebody's snoring, what happens? We have a feeling about that or we have a thought about that, or we have a judgment about that, or we wish we were sleeping too, or something, you know. Someone starts crying and half the room is feeling tremendous compassion. Right? We're very connected to see the causal nature of these things. To see what happens with your mind when, say, you are feeling... <clears throat> confused, you don't know what you're doing in the meditation. And that feels really painful because you, and then because there's a judgment about, oh, 
I really don't know what I'm doing. I'm really lost and everybody else knows what they're doing and I'm the only klutz, I'm the, you know, the lowest of the class. And we make this whole story, we see this, this causal chain. So another way to look at this, uh, the Buddha said to, uh, we're establishing bare knowledge and attention. Bare knowledge of what's happening. And I mentioned before, bare attention. So bare attention is the absence of our thoughts and proliferations about something. So, and, we, and what happens when we meditate, when, we, when we're silent like this, is we see a lot of proliferating mind. So something arises like, you know, it's 12 o'clock and we start to feel some sensations in our belly of hunger, right, a little hollowness or something. Rather than just be, be curious and aware of the hollowness and the sensations, we start going, ah, oh, wonder what's for lunch. Huh, I hope it's not tempeh tomorrow. Ah, or today. Oh, I hope it is tempeh, I love tempeh. I should eat more healthy when I get home. You know, I need to get those cookbooks and arrange my kitchen, you know, and hire that chef I was going to, and go on a course, and go to Italy, and know how to cook great salads. And, and all of a sudden, we're, you know, we're on vacation in, you know, Rome, and romantic, and all of that. And we think about someone we met here on the retreat, and maybe they'll come with us. And, you know, and we're lo- really lost in some massive fantasy. And then the lunch bell goes, and we oh, right. Meditation, spirit rock, hungry, you know, and then, you know, and then we come back, right? And then two seconds later, we're, you know, we can't find our shoes out there. It's like, oh, and then we have this whole story about someone stolen our shoes and why does it always happen to me? And, you know, I should have worn those red clogs. Nobody ever takes those. And, <laughs> and then you turn around, the red clogs are behind you and, you know, we create another story, and so on it goes to, to, to see the proliferating mind. And again, with, you know, whatever we point out for you to look at, not to be judgmental about it or judgmental that you're not seeing it, but when you do, it's like, aha, there's that proliferating tendency of mind. Does that create happiness? Does that create well-being? Does that create peace? Mm, rarely. See it, let go, come back and we come back, and we come back a million, zillion times. So, many things to say, so little time. The last point that the Buddha made, and, and we'll talk for sure some more about this, is he talked about abiding, not clinging to anything in the world. Through mindfulness, we abide not clinging to anything in the world. As you may have noticed, when you're mindful, it creates a certain spaciousness, a certain clarity. It's almost like we develop a little more of a Teflon mind versus a Velcro mind. Things don't stick as much. They're not as sticky and heavy and as solid. And because, partly because of the things that I've been pointing to about the clarity, seeing the impermanence, seeing the changing nature, we, we, there's less tendency to identify with experience, to, to reject it, to try and run away from it, to hold on to it, because we see it's all changing. It's all coming and going. So the last thing I want to say um, is to and we'll, we'll introduce this practice tomorrow, we'll introduce the practice of loving-kindness, which some of you are familiar with, to remember the importance of infusing the mindfulness practice with kindness, with care. It's so easy for us to be hard on ourselves, to be judgmental, to be critical. And as mindfulness grows, we start to see more of ourselves, and some of it's not so pretty or the ways that we distract, the ways that we check out, the ways that we're not so skillful. And so it's essential that our practice is imbued with a loving presence, with kindness, with compassion, with forgiveness, for all the million times that we check out, all the times we might judge, all the times we forget, all the times that we space out. So there's a kind of a patient, accepting quality in the presence. 
So it's not harsh and judgmental, but because we, we grow when the conditions are warm and nourishing. So I'll close with a poem or a reading or something. I'll close with these lines from um, Henry Miller. He was writing about painting, but he's also speaking about what happens when we bring uh, this quality of presence to something. He says, I remember well the transformation which took place in me when I first began to view the world with the eyes of a painter. The most familiar things and objects which I had gazed at all my life now became an unending source of wonder, and with wonder, of course, affection. A teapot, an old hammer, a chipped cup, whatever came to hand, I looked upon it as if I'd never seen it before. To paint is to love again, to live again, and to see again. So one of the things that arises out of mindful presence is we do start to see things clearly. We might see ourselves, we might see another person. We often see things as if for the first time. And mindfulness, and it's been, there's been a lot of research on the relationship between mindfulness and empathy, mindfulness and love, mindfulness and compassion, that that clear seeing without judgment is often what allows the heart to embrace our experience and the difficulty and the pain with a warmth, with a, with a loving embrace. And that becomes one of the fruitions of the practice where those qualities of love and awareness really unify. So let's just sit for a moment. simply attending to what's here. And even the frogs get silent. So thank you for your attention. So we will have a um, walking meditation now and we'll come back in here at nine o'clock for some sitting and some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.